This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. It's hard to have a friend who's a slow eater because when you finish your McChicken sandwich, watching them finish their McDouble cheeseburger and small fries can be excruciating until they notice you staring and offer up a few fries. That must be what friends are for. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. Get a McChicken sandwich, McDouble cheeseburger, four piece chicken McNuggets, or small fries for just a few bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any offer or combo meal. Today we welcome Kevin Devine. You may know him from Miracle of 86, Bad Books, or his solo career. Kevin is one of the most genuine musicians I've ever met, and I know this because we used to play shows together in the early 2000s in New York City, and he was courteous to a little shitbag like me playing sad acoustic songs to 12 people and ending a set by covering Jimmy Eat World's On a Sunday. So, if you're listening, to, if you're listening to this in the year 2035 on your iPhone 24, yes, Kevin is probably still touring. So go see him. It's a pleasure <laughs> to ha- Kevin. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being. Wow. Well, thank you. It's good to. I'm happy to be on it. And what an introduction. Although I would have to say, in 2000, and some might argue currently still, but part of whatever you perceived as charity was probably because I was also a. Uh, little shit bag playing sad acoustic songs, and uh, if I wasn't ending with a Jimmy Eat World cover, it was probably something in the in the ballpark. So <laughs> there was like there was identification there, commonality. Yes. I guess I I actually kind of want to know that because I was at work today trying to remember, and this isn't it just about us, but it is sort of plays into everything. We have a lot of similarities. You were on Emo Diaries, you know. You had you know. New York, we're in the New York at the same time, around the same age. Mm-hmm. That time period, like that acoustic sort of time period, what was it? Was that just something you were like, all right, I'm going to start playing these songs that I wrote, and that was it? More, I mean, yeah, more or less, I think, because that was probably around... 99? 2000, 99, 2000, 2001. And I, really, essentially, what happened was... Um, for me, like, I got really into, I came into punk rock music through Nirvana, like a lot of people mind. I'm 34, so I was 12 when that record came out. And I was like prime, you know, I was like basically one of the people who got, you know, whatever you want to call it. It was like an, an evangelical reaction to that music. It was just like, oh my God, this is the only thing I want to listen to now. And I want to be in a band like that. And that like, you know, Nirvana and Baguette, you know, all of those alt rock bands. And then because of the way, 
you know, Nirvana talked about like truly independent bands and punk rock bands. Like, uh, that for me, it begat like Pavement and Super Chunk. And then through that, like getting into like the Matador merge, like drag city, sub pop, that stuff. I got into Sunny Day eventually, and Sunny Day was like the skeleton key, or like the um the bridge between indie rock and emo. And I guess it was also kind of like this. will get back to your question, I promise. But uh, also the bridge between like emo and hardcore, indie rock and hardcore, because I was like I was playing in these sort of punk rock hardcore shows on Staten Island at that time in a band called Delusion that later became Miracle of '86. It was like a pretty like DC. It was like a mix of the DC stuff and like the Syracuse stuff. It was a lot of like, you know, very angry, like vaguely uh, either very like uh, angular or metal inflected music. That was like you know there was a lot of politics in it, veganism and straight edge and all of that kind of stuff. So, and we were like a band that was ripping off Nirvana and poorly ripping off pavement and they were just like yeah you can play with us that's fine <laughs> so that that sort of scene i was writing for that stuff playing in that stuff in fact i met john zutch from emo from um deep elm at like the wilkesbury festival in 1996 i was like 16 and a band i was in called infine from staten island was the first first band on the first of three days and he had his like little merch booth set up and I handed him a delusion demo and that eventually led to us being on that emo diaries comp. But through all of that, I always also liked, like my mom was a big, you know, sixties pop hippie kind of Dylan and Beatles and Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell and Phil Oaks and that kind of Simon and Garfunkel, that kind of stuff. And then that seventies Laurel Canyon stuff. And I really liked like the quieter parts of those bands I just mentioned. Like I like Here by Pavement a lot. I liked Nirvana Unplugged and All Apologies a lot. I liked R.E.M. a lot. Um, and that first Counting Crows record a lot, for example. And so somewhere in college, I went to school at Fordham at Lincoln Center. And, you know, it doesn't sound super far. It's another borough, but it was 90 minutes from the south shore of Staten Island, you know? So it was like pretty removed at that point you're like 17 I was like living in Manhattan I had this acoustic guitar but I didn't have my band available all the time and I started writing a bunch of those I always had written them but I started like writing more of that kind of music and playing it at these like open mics the D Cafe at Fordham and these like on-campus performances and so this was all kind of happening and then da 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 um Elliot Smith was happening and I saw him like 12 times while I was in college and got like freshman year of school got like crazy into that which then led you to going backwards to like reclaiming Dylan and Neil Young and the Beatles and all that like for me while also still liking this indie rock stuff and I had like a two-year immersion into emo that was like you know get up kids Mineral, Sunny Day was big. Uh, Promise Ring for me was big. Uh, I liked like I liked Christy Front Drive. I liked the like, Boys Life bands like that. But then Elliot Smith and Bell and Sebastian kind of like I don't know how to explain it. It was like I had a two year love affair deep into emo music, and then I kind of 
felt like the emotional needs were being met by the stuff Elliot was singing about, but the music just appealed to me. It seemed a lot more subtle and a lot more complex, but just as like powerful um, without being as like, I don't know the right word, without calling attention to itself as much, I guess is the best way to put it. And that spoke to me in some way. And I kind of fell in love with that. And, and uh, that's kind of, I guess, how I started to get more, more into like writing and playing acoustic music than into at that time, like, or, or equivalently into that as I was into like playing stormier, loud, noisier, like pop, like punk pop music or whatever, you know, uh, emo pop punk music or whatever. So it was kind of like, it was all happening at the same time, but what was available to me when I was alone in my dorm was me and a guitar. And I was just like, it just so happened that just as that was happening, I also was like falling in love with this other style that seemed, I just remember seeing him play at tramps on the either or tour. It was like February of 1998. And I remember being like, I'd gotten up and played like acoustic songs at hardcore shows and stuff, but seeing him do that by himself, the level of like, he wasn't super fucked up yet. So the level of like, he was just excellent, excellent. The guitar playing, the melodies, the confidence, the, the, the fragility of it, but also it was like tough. I just remember seeing it and being like, Oh, you could do that. And then I think I've probably spent the last 16 years of my life, like slowly song by song, realizing just how hard it was <laughs> to be as good as that dude actually was. And no, not everybody can do that, but you know what I mean? There was that, like, it was one of those, it was like seeing what you want to be, what you want to do. So that's how all that started happening. If that that's, makes any sense. That was the best answer I've ever had for that question. And um, it, I, I jumped ahead just because I was, I, I was thinking acoustic, but yeah, with, with, with miracle. And I think all of these kind of play into what we're going to mention a bunch. I mean, the age we both had, Nirvana, duh. That I mean, we, I had that same moment. I literally saw the video, and I told my dad, let's go and get a guitar at the store. Like, we're going now. We're getting this record. Like, we're going right now. This is That's how, like, <laughs> that's, that's how it, it, it literally saw the video, put it down, let's go. Um, yeah. And I think those those moments, you know, you mentioning D.C. and, and, and Syracuse, and, like, you – you melded all of those and you kind of fell into the indie because of sunny day and sub pop. And I love that discovery part. It was, you got a record, it was on sub pop and then you started investigating. Um, and the amount of, the amount of work that it kind of took. It's, uh, and, and yeah, when you start going down this road and I totally agree with you, I always feel like I end up like, you know, you're, you're sounding like uh, kids these days. Um, the internet is, amazing and scary but that was really like the, that level of uh i feel like we were the last like edge of that being of, of being in a generation where you t- did sort of have to dig more it wasn't I mean, like look at the shows look, look at the shows yeah. we went to go look at 1997 or 98 it's like i was a friend sent me a show a juliana theory show every single head is looking at the band no one has their head down no one has a f- camera up there might be one person in front using like a really nice cannon but that was it you know and it was mike dubin yeah it was it was probably mike dubin and everyone <laughs> else was and everyone else was watching everyone else was in it and i think at 2000 when i think 
you know, it was really easy to get a phone and it was started. It, it just that that changed. That was yeah. And it really was that, and I think there's other musical genres that were probably, but specifically talking to the one that this is about, that was it. And it was so crazy, like, reading, talking to a friend and being like, you gotta check out this band. Well, you weren't looking on your phone in five seconds, you had to go to the damn store. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, you're right. You lucky kids. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I mean, I do think, I do think that, um... There's, there's this, there wasn't, I feel like we were like cleaved right in the middle. Cause I, for me, it was like, I was living on Staten Island and I didn't have, we got like, you know, modem phone dial up AOL Wi-Fi or, or not Wi-Fi, uh, you know, internet connection in, uh, 1997, like the, like six months before I went away to school and, um, you know, I I feel like even the first year or two I was in college, like I did my home, like my wrote my papers on like a word processor. There was a computer lab, but it was like pretty bare bones. There was like an intra Fordham email thing, but it wasn't like online. Was I like checked some... my email like once a week. Right. And it right. was like you emailed me. Come see me, dummy. You know. <laughs> So, and I, and I kind of, you know, I kind of liked, I kind of liked uh, thinking about that now. It's funny. I kind of like, you know, that, I liked being on both sides of that. You know, I'm glad there was like, I had this experience as like semi-independent, quasi almost adult that was like before that total immersion. And now, you know, it's like, and I think it affects the voraciousness with which you pursue music and i i mean i don't not to say i think the people who grew up in, entirely in this generation aren't as like avid about loving music because i think that's insane and not true and unfair but i think it's a little bit more like literally and figuratively streaming at you now uh and you can sort of be more passive and receive it it's infinite more easily yeah and, and also obviously that changes the role like every musician now is kind of is particularly in, a, in an industry that's kind of constantly crumbling at the corners like it's like the never-ending story or something but there's this expectation that beyond being a a musician you also have to be like a kind of social media maven and like marketing wizard and you know uh, independent entrepreneur and some of that's great because some of that was always there in some sense with all these little labels and stuff but the nature of it feels a little different now I feel like Uh, so maybe a little bit more careerists or something and a little bit less like communal in some respects but because you're I not mean, really you're, you're connecting in a different way you know it's i don't know if 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 using the example of us if we had met back then and it was now we would be facebook friends we'd tweet back at each other but it's different than when you see them you hang out we have actual it's that i still think there's validity to that person to person connection even when it's touring you know you connect with those bands and some of that sort of dissipating yes more people are listening to music yes there's more access to everything but those connections seem looser they're not as they're not as you know i like kevin divine so yes i listen to him on spotify yes i has a facebook friend but it's not you know you didn't buy the cd you might not have seen him like you you just watched it on youtube it's so passive 
And in some respects, I mean, I, that's, there is something about that stuff that's literally amazing and incredible. Uh, and there's also stuff about it that makes me like a little concerned about, you know, I guess what the alt, the end game of all that is, if that makes any sense, or like what the lasting impacts that could have are. But, uh, you know, I guess that's more will be revealed. And probably everybody's felt this way <laughs> at some point. But these, these, these leaps do feel like more accelerated and profound than have ever been uh, in, in such a compressed time period prior. And they, they're really game changers. So I, it's, it's interesting. It's like, you know, living in constant motion and figuring out how to, how to navigate that is, 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 you know, not, it's not specific to the independent musician. Um, but it's an interesting, it's certainly an interesting issue for, for like this community and figuring out how to move forward. But, and I think related to that, how are you sort of dealing with having more people, want stuff from you it isn't just you're playing the show you're hanging out selling t-shirts and then you're back in the van it is instagram vine every you know facebook it's like how how are you dealing with those changes and how and being more more uh open to people connecting to you well i mean i really like a lot of that stuff you know i kind of like it's weird some of it i think is is quite cool like i like the having the opportunity to, you know, I have a laptop that has a camera, you know, and being able to like think of a song I'm interested in covering or like a day I'm walking around humming man on the moon all day. I can like sit down and play man on the moon. And now I can also like turn on my computer and film it and put it up on our Facebook page. And if someone likes my music, it's some little thing they can enjoy for, five minutes in the middle of their day while they're at work or at school or wherever they are. And I, that is cool. I mean, that's, I like the uses of it that feel uh, germane to the way I exist in not just music, but in the world. Like that's something I just think is, is cool. It's like, if I, I would be totally happy with hearing like, you know, Elliot Smith's one afternoon record a quick video of him performing uh, harvest moon or something and then putting it up on Facebook just because that's pretty rad. That being said, obviously, you know, there's an aspect of all that stuff. That's like, um, I guess this is where it gets a little tricky. It's like, is that working? If you looking for at it from a like monetary standpoint, I think that you do a lot of like working for free now as a musician, but I also think like that probably feels different to you dependent upon where you came from and why you're doing it and how you got there. And, you know, uh, to me, it's like, I, I didn't get paid much more than 50 bucks to play music ever uh, from when I was 14 to like 24, probably, you know, like I, there weren't very many experiences in my life. And during the entirety of Miracle of 86 being a band, I don't know if we ever got paid. We had one college show. I'll never forget that we got offered from some super fan who was really generous and had like money to burn that like, you know, had us come out and play at some like super Christian school. And I want to say it was like Northern Iowa somewhere, maybe Decorah, Iowa. And we drove there because it was like, the kid was like, I'll give you, 
you know, it was like four grand or something. And so, I mean, I don't think Miracle ever got paid. No, no exaggeration, more than 150 bucks to play a show ever. So we like got it, rented a car and drove out there. And, and, I, and then we went on tour in Europe and like we didn't lose money because we had just had this $4,000 float. We you know, didn't make money going there, but we actually like, you know, had a break even Europe tour that was financed by this Iowa <laughs> show. And, but like, so to me, it's always, you know, the act of like putting up a funny picture on Instagram or something I'm interested in, or, or using these tools as a way to like get people to hear your music or share some aspect of your personality or interests that feels comfortable to you that stuff doesn't really creep me out I've tr- I try to like draw boundaries with I don't really speak about my personal life on social media or I try to I have not I don't have like a hundred percent airtight success rate with that but like I don't really think that's the place to speak about like my romantic entanglements or my you know intimate details about my family I might like make allusions to some of those things in like a passing way but I don't I don't like that and I don't like seeing it. I, I don't really like seeing it used that way. So I don't, I, it's to me, it's also like, that's for me, that's private. That's like my life. And this is a part of my life, but that's like something I like to keep separate. And as long as to me, it's like, I just try to keep those boundaries clearer. And maybe some people don't like that. And it's, you're supposed to be like all available all the time or something, but I, I don't really, uh, that's not for me. Yeah. So that's just like a boundary I try to keep with it. But And you mentioned, you know, family and I, I think this kind of relates and I want to bring this up because this is interesting. I love talking about where bands come from and their experiences. You know, when I talk to Mike Kinsella, it's the Midwest or Davey from the Promise Ring, or if I'm talking to Sam I Am or a band from New York. Staten Island. Think if people don't know People don't sometimes don't even know it's part of New York, and I think it's a very special place. I love it. I've actually had so many, I've great times there, and I think it's it. You guys are sort of isolated, and mm-hmm. you have access to New York, but it's separated by this ferry that feels longer <laughs> than it is, and yeah. so you have your own sort of team and sort of community, and you sort of roll together and you're you're really band I noticed that you guys were really banded together as a scene and that was amazing because you're so close to you had all the access to anything you could sort of experience but you sort of did it on your did it yourself on the island is that accurate it felt that way to a you know high school kid falling into that scene it felt like i mean I was young. I, I was always like at that point in my life, like all those people from there were these bands like Fallacy and CR and uh, Serpico and that were like bands that actually like went out and played out of state and, um, you know, some I'd be Serpico into like Europe, you know, and, and toured. And so, but they were all five to 10 years older than I was, you know? And to me, I was just like, I just couldn't believe that this kind of thing existed there. I, I, I remember like the first, my introduction to all of that stuff was I was a, uh, I, I, I played, you know, I played in this band that was basically playing like Nirvana songs and songs that sounded like Nirvana songs. That was about the breadth of our, or tried to be sounding like Nirvana songs is probably the more accurate um, depiction. But 
uh, we were like 14 and I remember like we got asked, we were, we played at the Staten Island at my school. We played at the, uh, super dance Farrell. It's like all boys Catholic school, which was a, uh, it was a, um, muscular dystrophy association, like benefit they did every year fundraiser. And, um, I remember like going, playing this show and it was like our first show that wasn't like in someone's front yard at a like block party or something. And, you know, kids were like, there was a couple of kids that were like slam dancing, you know? And I was like, Whoa, this is, uh, like we're, we're killing it, you know? And, um, we, I remember this kid came up to me afterwards and he was a junior. I was a freshman and uh, his name was Chris McAllen. And he was like, um, you know, he had like a, I think he might have like a Scooby-Doo shirt on or something. He was like, you know, uh, you're, uh, you guys are pretty cool, but you need a bass player. We played without a bassist. I forgot that detail. So, uh, that's he was clutch. Like, you, you really need insane. those. Yeah. And he was like, come to my, uh, yeah, you do need a, yeah, you do really need a bass player. He was like, come to my, um, what's a, my homeroom on, uh, on Monday. And, you know, we'll talk and, and maybe we could like, I'll be in your band. And so I went to his homeroom and we, uh, he was like this super just fidgety, interesting, like older dude who liked, like, you know, started talking about music and he liked like dinosaur junior and uh, everything started to click. Yeah. I was like, Whoa. And so, we ended up bringing him to our band and he came and, and weirdly the guy who was the other guitar player who was like a pretty technical whiz, he never showed up again, this guitar player. We never were like a four piece. His name was Jimmy Gaffigan and he actually ended up being the, um, the chair of like the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, which is super weird. He was like a whiz, this kid. But so Chris came to our first rehearsal and he ends up like taking out his bass isn't working and he takes out a soldering gun and like fixes his bass in the middle of the rehearsal space. And I was just like, this is the coolest guy I've ever met in my life. Like, who, who are you? And that's how we, he was like, I think I can get us a show. We got on a show at the Rock Palace in Staten Island, uh, May 7th, 1994. And it was a month after Kurt Cobain killed himself. Oh, yeah, and, you're right. Wow. Yeah. And we played with four hardcore bands. I was 14. And we did five, nine songs, and four of them were Nirvana covers. And all the hardcore kids were just standing there, like, shaking their heads, like, just, like, <laughs> laughing at us. And I, I remember laughed. it was... Oh yeah, and I remember it was this thing where you were like, where to, people would set your name at the door, and that they'd take a like a tally mark, and that's how they'd pay you. Um, and we got paid like twenty six bucks or something to play this show. But like afterwards, one of the more generous of spirit of the hardcore kids was like, "Hey man, listen, you know, you guys are okay, but you know, you really shouldn't do that. You really should not, uh, shouldn't have played those." those Nirvana songs. I mean, he's, he just died and it's not really like a cool thing to do. And people in this scene aren't really into that. And, you know, Nirvana's okay, but there's a lot more, you know, he was just very, this one guy was just a lot like more interested in, you know, not being like proprietary about it. And that was my entry point into this uh, hardcore scene. And what I think a lot of people, it's a minor moment in history, you know, in, in music history in this, in New York, because it's an outpost and it was an, it's a sub genre 
in an outpost. So it's like, you know, it's, it's whatever could be less than a footnote, but to me and to the kids that I was growing up around, like if you were on Staten Island, you were in the shadow of like the, and you were interested in like whatever you want to call it, art or independent or alternative culture, as interested and as knowledgeable about that as you can be at 15, 16, you know, those are formative years, but you're, if you're existing in the shadow of like the Mecca of truly interesting and independent culture, which is Manhattan, there's this literalized distance between yourself and it. You're like looking at the skyline. You have to cross a body of water to get there and go to their cool record shops and stuff. And then where you're so that, so you feel less than in terms of that. And then you're on this Island where there's a lot of like knuckleheads, a lot of like dudes that are like, it's, it's, I always thought it like Staten Island, which I, there's a lot of really great stuff about it, but there's aspects of it at that point. Anyway, that reminded me of like, the segregated South or something. There was like this de facto, the North shore was where like the black and Hispanic people lived. The South shore was, or and like poor white people. And the South shore was where like the middle class, you know, to upper class, either like mobsters or cops and firemen lived. <laughs> and I was in that category. My dad was a cop. My mom was a nurse and I lived out there. And so it was this middle-class family. And, and so like, it was a really, and going to high school, there was a lot of like, you know, stuff that you'd expect to hear stories about that would have happened in like, I don't know, some super backwards part of like Mississippi in 1960 or something. People saying shit that you were just like baffled by. And so you felt less than there or misfit there. And so then to find this place where like people were like, you know, I, the, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it. People and anyone who's been at a punk rock show knows exactly what I'm talking about. But pe- people were celebrating this, like their differences were, were celebrated. And the more different you were, that's how that was a currency rather than like being fearful of feeling less than it was more like that was like really badass. And, and that was so eye opening, especially for someone who was interested in like Nirvana. And that was like a big part of his appeal was like, you know, made you feel like a little bit less weird because this guy seemed pretty weird too. So, uh, it, you know, it was very powerful. And I think it was very like conscious of the role it was playing in one another's lives at that point. And then it just kind of went away around 1998, this scene that had developed like one of the dudes who was a linchpin, this guy, Freedom Tripodi, just kind of stopped doing shows and wanted to move on to doing other things. And you know, Jay Miller kind of tried to pick that back up in like around 2000. By then I was kind of like elsewhere. I wasn't really living there anymore. And I was kind of doing different things. I would come back and play shows and it looked like it seems to be a fun environment for those kids, but it just didn't feel as like, I don't know, fraternal or there was this like political unity in this way at that, that, at that scene. And, 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 you know, bands would come from like out of, New York and do New York like bands of merit <laughs> in that world would like do shows in New York at like ABC Rio or a Sunday at Brownies or something and then go play at like the joint on Staten Island which was like crazy like touring bands playing at some fucking VFW hall on Staten Island and that was like you know 150 people would be there like buying their merch and freaking out like that's that was a really 
I was just lucky to be there at the moment that was happening. If that makes any sense. No, it totally does. It's that it's you. You know, that's why I meant you were seeing it. You were. It was this. It was this object, but you were doing your own thing. In, I mean, I do consider Staten Island like it felt southern. You know, it was like I was like, oh my god, like there are people that are very backwards, but then there's like this one part that's like poor. It's like I saw all that going there, and you sort of. That was, I mean, I feel like that hardcore scene sort of took you from that and you could connect with them because all around was that environment. Some of people didn't kind of get out of that environment. They weren't exposed to it. No, that's absolutely right. And I think that in that sense, and it's impossible to talk about teenage feelings without some sense of drama uh, and, and, you know, maybe obviously heightened inappropriate sense of drama on some level, but... um, it literally felt like, like a lifesaver. You know, I remember getting asked to freedom had like freedom was the dude freedom had like, at first it was this guy, these guys, Jeff and Marco that had a band called Enrage, and they were like a huge hardcore band, but they were like not a political band. You know, they were just like, they, they they had, they were a hardcore sounding band that was not social in that way, political. Now I remember hearing about this guy freedom and he was an extreme character and people either loved him or hated him. And, you know, I was 15 or something, and he had this, there was this record store called Our Music Center on Newdorf Lane and Highland Boulevard, and they had, like, he had this little section that he had, it was like he was basically running a distro out of this, this was like a normal record store, but they also had, like, bootlegs, like, you could get, like, subterranean records or play some Bleecker Street or whatever, they had that, and I used to go buy Nirvana and Pearl Jam and whatever bootlegs there, but he had this section that was like he was selling seven inches from like you know initial records or k records or or some you know, stuff from drag city stuff from uh, all of these like you know abolition all of these places all over the place he was selling these seven inches and he was like he would review them and put a sticker on it and color it and he had staten island bands in there and i remember like being like oh that's a big deal like if we could get our, if we could make a seven inch and get it in our music center and get freedom to review it. He was like one of the first cult of personality people that I met that I was just like, you just wanted this guy to think you were cool, you know? And I remember like, I remember like going in and going in and meeting him and he had tattoos and he had like sort of radical, he had like some kind of socialist, I can't remember now, maybe red stars or something and a vegan t-shirt and triple x's and his record label was fucking called struggle records and three x's under struggle and i was just this kid that was like whoa you know not it was it was very uh challenging and radical and i remember like going up working up the courage to ask him if the um radiohead my iron lung ep was there they had that for sale and he was like yeah, uh, they're a major label rock band, and they pressed a thousand copies of it. So yeah, we definitely got a bunch of them at our music center on Staten Island. No, it's not here. And I was just like, oh my god, like so super shut down. You fucked like, up. He, yeah, and like exactly, and like he wasn't into our band at first, and I kind of thought he was like this dick, and I, I kind of wrote, yeah, I'd write these songs about it, like the hardcore scene there talked about being inclusive, and it was actually exclusive, which you know, actually as a 34 year old man is partially true, but that's part of the price of admission in those cultures. But like, anyway, point is he eventually like, we made this 
this seven inch and it was, that was around the time I found diary and diary. Like all of a sudden are like attempts at sounding like Nirvana and super chunk. We're now like Nirvana and super chunk with sunny day in there too. A songs got slower and longer. And I was like, you know, they kind of, I felt like that was the first band that it felt like okay to write like really explicitly about your feelings to me, even Nirvana. Like you could tell, he had a lot going on, but he was also kind of like, it was so much sarcasm and irony and detachment. And he kind of was like, he would bury it, you know? And, and, and certainly um, some of my favorite moments were when it would peek through and I could hear the feeling in Michael Stipe's voice, but I had no idea what he was talking about, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So Sunny Day came out, wrote this record, this seven inch, wrote a song about, um, my brother, who was sick at that point, he was dying. he had contracted AIDS and he was sick. And um, I, um, I, I, you know, I went into our music center one day, and our seven inch was was in there, and he had written this really nice review of it. And I remember being like, "Whoa!" Like we did this thing that I was really proud of, and Freedom liked it, you know. And and then it was like, so he had this place that that he, and we started becoming friendly and I, he was the first guy I ever heard talk about like Malcolm X or Karl Marx or animal rights or, you know, even feminism or riot girl or any, like, you know, he was like, uh, you know, like an alternate college syllabus for a 15 year old kid that like stuff he wouldn't teach you. <laughs> and I, I fell in love with this dude. Like I thought he was the coolest guy. And I was, he took me and my friends like under his wing and, we're still friends today, you know, 20 years later, but he, he had this, this, I'm talking about that thing we're talking about, about that, like mind blowing exposure to this thing. He ended up like having this house, the Stobe house, 130 Stobe Avenue on Staten Island. And he, he had shows and he had a mail order and he ran his label out of there and the Dagobah cafe. And this was this place where like he had, he had delusion playing acoustic set in the basement and it was a fundraiser for some animal rights group. And like my dad came, I remember my dad, like a retired cop and freedom talking and shaking hands. And my dad asking questions about the business. And I remember sitting there being like, just, you know, it was an, it was awe inspiring to me. And I remember like going there to play this show. And these two girls were like leaning their heads out of the second story and they were like shaving each other's heads and dyeing them, hanging out the window and laughing and singing words to this copper song. And I remember being like, just who are these people? These people are like, and the fact that that was all there on Staten Island and it wasn't Chicago and it wasn't the Lower East Side and it wasn't, you know, it was this literal island of misfit toys inside this island of, you know, sort of forgotten, this forgotten borough. And uh, I mean, I can actually, and I can, you could probably hear it from the way I'm talking about it, and I might be leading us far afield, but I could actually draw you a line, links in a chain, from then to now, and it feels very much like, like that is as important a part of the story to me as like, I don't know, like meeting Manchester and Brand New, or like playing shows with Bright Eyes and Cursive, or like doing a record for Capital, or anything, the Kickstarter, any of that stuff, like... None of those things eventually happen if that didn't happen, you know? I, I think you, it, as you were saying it, 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 the way that you were saying it, 
and I was watching your live stream, and it was just really fun to watch because I know you, and so I could kind of hear it, but it's still there, and that's why I wrote that note of just like you're it's in you it it it, it happened at that really important moment, and those things that freedom was talking about or that it it's still interweaving in all the things and that's what was really great about the hardcore scene. I thought it, there were bad things, but there were good things of where you sort of had those ideals and you were kind of really passionate about it. And for some reason it stuck. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I still think pick someone up if they fall on the floor or, you know, check out the merch booth or, you know, or, you know, help going to see the opening band. And it's just like all of those you it was a community and you felt that you needed to keep it going and 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 give back um and it seems like that's still a recurring thing for you throughout it it's it is and I, and I would be like remiss if i said like i never became as like you know i'm a vegetarian who's not like especially hardline about that choice it's how i choose to live my life but i'm not like a pontific I don't I'm not a pontiff I'm not someone who stands up I don't think it's my job to like convert people really to any cause I I think it's my job to like live the way I want to live and then and and the way that feels like sort of ethical and right to me and then hopefully if, if anything maybe like you can be someone who is maybe sometimes your best self which is not something I am not just all the time but a lot of the time but maybe that ends up being something that's like nominally if not like it makes someone else make changes at least it makes them ask questions and that that's what I took from that I never felt comfortable being like some of those people that I was really impressed by and interested in were way more like sort of um demonstrative about that stuff verbal about that stuff and I've never really to me I just see too much gray area in things to really feel super comfortable coming down on like black and white sides of, of things. But I, you know, you make choices for you. And, and so I would, I do want to like, I did think all of those things you just said, I do think all of those things, but I also like, even then I like, I guess it's like, I don't think I'm an especially radical person. I think there are aspects of radical people that fascinate me and like there's a pull that makes me probably a lot less of like a sort of uh, centrist hands folded kind of guy than I would have been if I had never encountered the freedoms of the world you know well it's like that indie world like you weren't it wasn't just the major label the, the the top 40 radio like you saw this this other world that wasn't exposed. You had three channels, 10 radio stations and the newspaper. Right. And it wasn't, this was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> oh yeah. Who knew? Cause even like, you know, I, they keep coming up because they think it's relevant, but even, you know, I just think it was a great gift to have been a teenager at a moment where there were pop stars who were like really vocal about niche politics and about, this this kind of inclusive, you know, I grow you grow up and you realize what a conflicted person a guy like Kurt Cobain was and how unfortunate that whole set of circumstances really was. And you know, as a thirty four year old man, you wish you could like talk to a twenty six year old deeply troubled dude and you know, sort of 
show some emotional availability and compassion and, 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 you know, show someone how the next 15 years could play out and be like, you don't have to, this isn't the only option available to you, you know, but, um, at the time, you know, you also hear stories afterwards where you realize this was a guy who was like half of his brain, he was drug addled and nuts, but half of his brain wanted to be Ian McKay, but half of his brain wanted to be Michael Jackson, you know, and he didn't really know how to like make those two things be at peace. And if he had been, maybe if, I don't know who, a different person who's like not surrounded by dysfunction and chaos and not broken from when they were young and not stuffing their feelings with drugs and, uh, you know, chasing some illusory, you know, fame sort of thing, uh, might have been able to deal with all that differently. But, you know, this guy kind of had every strike against him in some respects. And then you're handed the keys to the kingdom and told like your, your, your sort of pain and confusion is celebrated. Yeah. And so, but I mean, the fact, so he was obviously not like a model for behavior, but, the fact that there was this band that was like as big as Miley Cyrus is or as like, you know, Pitbull is or whatever is like, you know, enormously popular on pop radio right now. Like that there was talking about like homophobia and misogyny and, uh, you know, racism and about like uh, underground politics and underground art and underground music and about like, you know, that was really to me, especially as you look around at the landscape now, and again, I don't mean to sound like some finger wagging grandparent, but there's this part of me that's like, I just feel really lucky that was happening when I was 13. And I was exposed, like, I remember, and I love my father, and I, I love my family, and I come from like a lot of like working class New York people, and a lot of them were cops, or a lot of them were in that, you know, kind of world. And I remember reading, seeing a picture of Kurt Cobain in Circus Magazine with a guitar. And it had a sticker on it that said, vandalism is as beautiful as a rock in a cop's face. And I remember thinking, I was 12, and I thought, why would someone say that? Like, I never thought about, like, maybe I'd seen, I think I might have been, like, aware of, like, do the right thing, you know? <laughs> or, like, seen, like, some public enemy logo, like, shaved into Sinead O'Connor's head or something. And I think I thought, like, oh, it's interesting. Not everyone, like, trusts police. You know, I wonder why my dad seems cool. And then like this guy who was like rearranging my understanding of like what I thought was like cool in the world was saying this really kind of violent thing about police. And I, it made me think like, well, what is that about? And, and I, that's probably the first time I ever even thought about investigating what you eventually later would call like people who speak truth to power or like abuses of um, status and power. And now, you know, a lot of times police do the wrong thing to protect power and not have it be put in a position where it needs to like seed itself. That's the kind of stuff that like, you know, this was a pop singer <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff that like that gets me into hardcore, gets me into whatever else. And, you know, all of those things combined eventually. And then Elliot and, and you know, Pavement and Bell and Sebastian and Built a Spill and Modest Mouse and this and that and this and that and Brownies and Maxwell's and, you know, uh, all these other places eventually lead the wetlands and stuff lead you to like here. I could walk you like one foot at a time from in yeah well the I, it brings up the sort of the the you know the name of the podcast washed up emo and that two-year mm -hmm. period and i think i think it's really i think it's a good point to sort of 
talk about that era because we were sort of in it before and you knew the forefathers. If it was, you know, the DC scene into the sort of get up kids and then it kind of went into this haywire and then out. So you've been sort of before in it and then out. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And the first thing is sort of, um, you know, you were on the Emo Diaries Volume mm-hmm. Two, and by the mm-hmm. way, that's the only Miracle of '86 song on uh, Spotify, which I was very upset about. I was like, "That really? is really, un- yeah." Because I mean, I have the records, but it's like I was on Spotify being like, "Oh, let me futz around a little bit." I was like, "One song." I was like, "We need to, we need to fix this." So that's weird. I wonder if it's because the the first record was put out by Dubin's label, Fade Away, and I wonder if they have. I mean, I don't know if they ever set any of that stuff up but i know the second record which for me to my tastes is like when we got back together and played those two shows last or three shows last year we played like it was basically we played the entire every famous last word record and then like a handful of our older songs two maybe three that was the stuff that was like when i think of miracle the band i think of is the band that wrote the last record and the band that toured that record. And that was, that's my favorite music that band made. Uh, because I also think it started to be more like music that I still kind of listen to now. Um, but I, I, yeah, that was that emo diaries thing was like transformative. That was actually a huge deal for us. Like it was like, you know, thousands of people heard that. And, and we definitely were aware of the lineage and some of the bands that were on the first, um, first record and, 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 you know, I even remember at 18 and this is not bullshit. I even remember at 18, there was a conversation that happened in the band about whether we should do it because it was called the emo diaries. And I remember everybody was like, I don't know. That's kind of like, it was lame. It was yeah, kind of lame. And then it was like, but look at all these bands that are doing it. And this guy's really cool. And uh, we do have some of that in our, sound and in our influences it's not like i can't i'm not gonna like if people call the name was always that thing that word has always made people have such disparate reactions and it's such a that three letters have caused so much uh needless self-explanation and distancing from thousands of young musicians around the world but like I, you know, I do remember thinking like, well, I like Sunny Day. And I, I really, I remember seeing the Get Up Kids were the headliners on day three of that same festival where I met John Zutch and Deep Elm and played with Infind. And I remember like, I'd never heard the Get Up Kids. I remember watching them play and I was in love with them. I had their stickers on my Hyundai Excel uh, after that for like, I uh, listened to like uh, Woodson and that stuff. Like, oh, I remember being like, this is fast. It's like they it had that super chunk energy, but it was like it had that sort of nodded at that sunny day feeling, but it was like pop music too. I, I remember being really more so than Braid, honestly, like Braid and that stuff. Like I always was like into it when it was on, but I was never really like a big math guy. And even those things were a little mathy for me sometimes. And I liked... I think I just like pop music. Even I like it when it's like turned on its ear, like which is why I loved Nirvana and the Pixies and stuff. But that's what I heard in the Get Up Kids, and that they just seemed so exuberant. And that's what I always loved about Superchunk. And um, yeah, I was totally that was 
I loved those bands and I loved the promise ring was a band that I really loved. And I remember going to see them play. I went to see them play a bunch of times at like uh, what's it called? Brownies and at wetlands. And I remember like once it was at wetlands with, uh, I want to say it was with Texas is the reason. And then once it was with like, maybe it was Texas is the reason and sense field was another show I saw there. Saw there. And I remember just like, yeah, that was all part of it for sure for me. And then I think around the time that we, because if you're talking about like the lineage of like my relationship to that music or whatever, to, to that scene, to emo, like when I remember being really pumped when like Miracle got to play one of the last Promise Ring shows at Bowery Ball and we were asked to open for them and we opened for rival schools and Walter was always like a really big, cool supporter of, of Miracle, which was nuts to me, you know, and, 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 and I remember like, he's a guy who got us connected with Mike Skinner, who ended up being not only Miracle's drummer, but my drummer for years and like produced five of my solo records with Chris Brocco and um, Walter was like a, a hinge with all that stuff. But he, I remember like we would play with like all those bands. And I do know that when we played and we'd go out on Long Island and we'd play with the bands that eventually were like, enormous like we played bowling alleys with taking back sunday and we played a backyard with brand new in a church quickly and I think, that taking back sunday show at, at the at the bowling alley was that with at the drive-in no that was something that was another show um that I, we didn't play that because for some reason i was about to say if i saw you then because i was at that one and i was like wait a minute there was like, if you played that, I would have been pissed because I, I missed you. <laughs> no, no, I, I would have loved to have played that. Although we would have, you know, gotten the, the stage wiped with us at a, by at the drive-in. But I mean, that was that was uh, that was another show that's like legendary out there now. But so we were kind of going back and forth between getting. And we would play like, and I even did a, a weirdly, I did some early acoustic like solo Kevin Devine show where I opened for Cursive at Brownies and came from like my job and it was like in an office and I looked like a clerk in an office who was 20 and awkward. And like, I just played with acoustic guitar before cursive and that was very memorable for me. But there was this, those bands when we started to play, like when I played with cursive, I remember thinking like there was something about that, that I liked or that felt more, I don't know the right word. It felt more, it, it, I connected to that more than I was connecting to the stuff that I, as a 20 year old that I was playing with when Miracle would do these shows on Long Island. And that's not a disparagement. It was just, that was where my tastes were. And I think I, I, I just thought there was something a little more darker, a little more dark or a little more like, I use the word urgent. There was something yeah. urgent about the song. It was like this, this moment of the, something's going to break and the yeah. song was holding it together as it played there's a tension in there. And I think that at that time, I also like, I think this is a big moment in this world. The, the, uh, I never, I was, I was too late. And this is, I swear to God, I've liked so much, not cool music in my life. This is not like a cool point. This is truth. I have liked so much music that is not cool, considered cool. Most, probably most of the music I've liked in my life is not considered like super cool. That being said, I was just too late for pop punk music. By the time that was like a big thing, I, it was 
totally not unappealing to me. And that's almost never changed. The things that I like that are in that world are more, and this is a very subtle distinction and it might be too fine for, you know, certain people might just think this is like bullshit, but it's stuff that I would classify more as like punk pop. And I don't know how to explain it besides I know it when I see it. And there's a difference to me between like the thermals and fallout boy. And I like one a lot more than the other. That's me. Right. So that's been like that for, for a long time. Now that being said, um, I think a lot of what started happening emo around 2000 and 2001 was like, there was this one strain that was this Midwest stuff. And there was different strains there, like the Chicago stuff, as opposed to the like Omaha stuff. There's this one strain that was more influenced by like that tension and also by like indie rock music and DC hardcore emo. And then there was this other strain that had aspects of that, but was more influenced by this pop punk thing like green day and blink 182 and that thing never got me, even when Miracle was writing music. And I don't know that we always did this successfully at all, but we were much more governed by like, we wanted it to sound like the up-tempo stuff. We hoped it sounded more like super chunk than like, you know, uh, Dookie or something like that. It was, it, that was not, and not that that's not cool music or it's not good music or blink any of that stuff. Cause those bands have now become like canonical bands. But at the time, it just, I just, I, I got ruined by pavement and helium. And then I got really ruined by like Elliot Smith. It was just like, I don't want to listen to that music. <laughs> so when emo bands were, when bands that were, there was a moment in time and it looks really different now in 2014, obviously, but there was a moment in time where like, you know, it wouldn't have been crazy for some of those pop punk influenced emo bands to be on a show with like bright eyes and cursives. Right. But those things felt very different to me. Not perfect, not without their flaws, not without their, you know, cause none of all of us, none of it is any, no song, no thing is, but it just felt more like that to me felt more like, uh, interesting and calm like there was more commonality to me um but of course that doesn't mean you always end up like we didn't end up like touring the world with those bands because we did shows with all of them and we did shows with all of them and we kind of never we and i never exactly like fit perfectly anywhere so all the way <laughs> but like that was for me a moment I don't know if that makes for me that was a, a clear distinction in that scene was like the emo bands that were influenced by like Fugazi and indie rock which are two different things obviously but there was like because even Fugazi got into like pavement and sonic youth you could hear it sometimes in their music and then or in the guitar tones or some of the approach like to some of the recording and then there was the emo that was more seemed connected to this pop punk stuff. And I was, for me, that was like a real moment of like disconnection from the word and from wanting to like write stuff that was, and that's when that bristling would start happening, which you wish, you know, all that energy you waste when you're in your early twenties trying to like direct people to what you think they should think of your music or something like that. But I, I remember being very conscious of that, like not wanting to be connected to this stuff that just felt like 
philosophically and aesthetically pretty far away from what I was certainly what I was listening to and what I thought I was writing, if that makes any sense. But also too, those other, those bands in the, you know, the mid two thousand you know, I felt it was, it was candy. You liked it, you ate it. And after you kind of felt, you know, later on it's sick and you don't really remember it. But a lot of this, I mean, and that's sort of coming true. Um, yes, a lot of the bands are coming around and, and, but what's, stuck in what people are mentioning now and I want to get into sort of the uh the 2014 world but it 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 didn't last and that's sort of the for me is a little bit of yes I was angry and wanted certain things to people to remember certain bands or why are you talking about it but it 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 was kind of put in its place yeah I think that's probably true I mean I kind of like I don't know if this speaks to, I think it, uh, in my mind, it speaks to what you just said. Uh, and I get through the specifics of my kind of winding, weird career arc. But. Because you went through it. You were like before, during, and after, and you were on Warp Tour. You were on those things. And yes, it was like, oh my God, Miracle of 86. Yes, but then this band has so much hair on their face, you can't even see them. Like it was, it was so weird. It was like neon and, you know, and then it was like, you know, black and gray. That's what it felt like sometimes. I remember when we played those shows at Warp Tour, it was really funny. It was like, so there was this guy, Matt, and he had a, uh, what the, it was, I want to say it was like King's Mob or something like that. He had this like alternative underground sort of media thing. And he, he and it was pretty like far out. He, he There was this guy, Sander Hicks, who was this like, spoken word artist and this writer who was like writing and self-publishing these pretty like leftist works of like fiction that were, you know, kind of beat poetry and influenced and, and he would like be very physical in his performances. And like, I remember this guy, Matt somehow got into miracle and we played like something at CB's gallery for him and we it got put on some comp and like Atari Teenage Riot was on it. Like it was a very out of our world and out of this world kind of thing. And that's what I always kind of liked. And I think it's also what's kind of made my career kind of hard to market for people whose jobs it is to market it is that we can kind of, I've always been able to kind of like fit a bunch of different places, but not totally fit in any one all the way. So we were like playing these shows with like brand new and taking back Sunday or then like, you know, uh, cursive and rival schools. And then we were like playing this fucking weird, like radical leftist punk rock thing. And, um, we were, um, we were, uh, doing all these things at the same time that were like in super different directions. And, um, I remember getting asked to do this DIY tent at Warp Tour with Miracle. And it was like, those shows at Warp Tour, we like drove there in my dad's car, 1998 Civic. And like, that's, that's a good to, year for the Civic, I must yeah, say. I, I, I have the same year. I still have it. I, I'm, tell, I'm telling you, the th was it stick or automatic? Uh, automatic. Uh, I had a stick. The thing, I mean, it, my, we, I think we sold it for more than we paid for it. I mean, the car was amazing. <laughs> it's nuts. It's a hundred and it's, a, I have 155,000 miles on it. And as of half an hour ago, it's still running or an hour ago. It's still running. So 
<laughs> but we drove up in that car and I'd like sleep in the parking lot and like our bass player Chris's knees would hit the steering wheel and the alarm would go off and like, <laughs> it was just like and then we get up and like go do this thing at this with this weird spoken word guy and he's like performance artist and this super punk rock dudes and like you know I I just remember thinking it was cool that we could play that show and then go play like the bowling alley with Taking Back Sunday. You know, I didn't see a lot of bands around that were like able to do all of that. And I actually still think like 12 years, 13 years later, that's still something I like. I like that I've been, I've been able to play a lot of different kinds of shows with a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds of venues. And I've been able to represent myself well at all of them. And I think that's, like I said, it's probably not been there. I don't think it was capital's favorite thing. I don't think it's a lot of people who's like, but it's never, it's, it hasn't made it easy in a lot of ways, but I also think it's made it more interesting and in some respects like deeper and more lasting but I guess, you know, that that's that remains to be seen, but it feels like that to this point. playing shows together in that funny time because that was like it was dashboard time but it wasn't and it was still like you know there were shows there were there were hardcore shows there were indie I feel like everything was kind of everything was intersecting at that point there really things were was, blending things were blending so do you remember when do you, I don't even remember was it a McGathy showcase was it was it through Jay I don't even remember I thought we played more than one show. First of all, I no, think it was we definitely played more a, than one show. I was saying, I, uh, I was. It was probably we played at Mercury. Probably, I think we played a McGaffey showcase for CMJ at CBGB's once. That was probably that was probably it. And I think it was with like I also think maybe like the Jazz June played. They might have played, and then um, homesick, homesick for space. Homesick for we played. That was shows we did that were through Immigrant Sun. That would have been we did like a show probably somewhere because there were also all those places that are gone now. That was like there was Tonic, there was Rothko, there was um, a place called the Infrared Lounge. Oh my God, at, that's where I did the. That's where did you play there too? That's crazy. Yeah. That's where I did a, a. I think I did Thursdays. I think that was my. I night. think we played one of those shows together. You had me play one of those shows. Wow, I you think. remember? Yeah, wow. And there was a place called Tribeca, that was run by one of the dudes that ended up running. Maybe I got into Bowery Presents at some point. There was the. Oh, I remember what it was. One of the dudes from that used to book Tribeca Noah or something ended up booking. Mercury Bowery and I ended up playing in this band New Numbers with my friend Mike Fatum who became the drummer for the goddamn band for like two or three years. But um but there was like uh I think it was all blurry. I think it was also like, you know, there was this emo movement that was happening and getting popular and then there was like the strokes, yeah yeah yeah's Interpol thing that was happening and getting popular. And then there was this middle lane, like Elliot was still around and people were into that. And, um, 
yeah, Jimmy World, and then I was around like you know Fevers and Mirrors and Listed, and that was and and Domestica, and there was a lot of like there very interesting time because it also would have made sense for a lot of those bands as different as they were to like be on the same bill in certain places. And they were at times. I have a funny miracle of 86 story about the strokes. Justin who managed the strokes, who used to book Mercury called me one day and was like, do you want to play? You know, we would do like a show every couple months at a certain point. And he was like, you know, you want to come play a show here? I was like, sure. And he's like, you know, I want to put this band I'm working with on. I want them to open if you're cool with that. And I was like, yeah, if you think that's good, sure. He's like, yeah, they're cool. They're called The Strokes. I think you'd like them. And we were friends with this band, The Realistics, that was playing with The Strokes a lot. And grew up, those were Staten Island guys. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then in the course of literally a month, he was like, he called me and he's like, yeah, they can't do it. They're, gonna head, they're headlining a sold-out show at the Bowery. It went from like they were going to open for us at Mercury to them selling out Bowery. You know, I honestly, within six months, I was watching last night on MTV and it was like, boom, just like they just took off. And that was something I remember at that time. What I remember the most about that period of time internally was, and I, I don't think this about our interactions, but I remember being very like, part of that thing, I think oh, early twenties in a vibrant music scene, competing for space, also drinking all the time. I was, and the band I was in and the guys that were in the band with me at the time in their lives, I was very judgmental in my head. Like I was really like, cause I was threatened by all of this like interesting music. And I was really, I felt it made me feel small and I was very judgmental. And I remember like hating the strokes before I'd even like listened to their record you know, talking shit about them being like trust fund kids and blah, 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 blah. And then like five years later, listening to those fucking records and being like, those first two strokes records are perfect. They're perfect. I would rather listen to those two records, honestly, most of the time than anything else. Like if they come on, I'm like, all right, this is better than anything else I'm going to find. So I should just leave these on. It's a record. It's a record. I know. I think like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's the whole thing. It's one through 10. You're like, I all do. right, I got this. <laughs> so that exactly, and that that, but that's what I remember about that period of time was just like I was just like really afraid and didn't know enough to know that's what it was, and so what I did was just like kind of like instead of like building friendships, I built a lot of like we did dumb shit. Miracle played a show with uh, the reunion show, guys from Edna's Goldfish, and then Derek ended up being in Brand New for a long time. And they asked us to play, you know, they asked us to play. And like, we were uh, like, we were, and they were like super respectful and they were fans. And like, we got up on stage and like made fun of them being in a ska band, like on stage, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And like drank a 30, drank like 35 beers in our rental van and then went and like acted like assholes and that stuff that like in retrospect, I apologize to those people you know, I think that there was a lot of stuff that I did back then or thought back then that, like, I'm really grateful to have had those things, like, stripped away over time because, you know, I remember being asked by Dashboard. Dashboard talked about, like, Circle Gets the Square and Alternative Press and, like, being asked by Chris to open for him at this theater in Hartford and actually, like, really thinking about whether I should do it because I didn't know if my friends were going to, like, make fun of me. And then, like, 
that was, that was a huge deal because I remember going and doing it and he was the nicest dude, like treated me so well and was so respectful and cool and inclusive and are still friends now. And I remember thinking like, you got to reexamine this like fucking provincial indie rock nineties snotty thought process. You're cause you're not really this guy and the people you're around are as scared as you are. And if they can't, if they can't admit it to themselves yet, you need to start admitting it to yourself. And like, it was a, the beginning of a big change that like, you know, what, what happened? What happened? What happened? What was the change? What was the, what was the, what was the you moment? started to be embarrassed about thinking this way and realizing what it was about. And it was a slow series of realizations, but it was really about just like fearing I wasn't going to get my needs met or that people weren't going to think I was cool. The people who I wanted, you know, I always loved bands that people like, you know, I wanted the people who like pavement to like my band. But the fact is, that's not the kind of music I ever wrote. And it's not who I am. And instead of like worrying so much about that, I just started to get more slowly on this path of like just writing, worrying about the music I was making and how I was being less closed. And that also, you know, at some point in there, I like, started stopping drinking and doing drugs. And a lot of clarity over time has come with those decisions, too. Not everybody needs to do that. Not everybody has a problem with drinking and drugs. I just didn't know how to do them like a gentleman. I only knew how to do them like a pig. And eventually it became problematic. And I think it affected that, too. You know, like that was I was really interested in like. Bullshit <laughs> that was ultimately obstructing like taking care of myself and worrying about the work I was doing. And that changed over time. What, so what this is, I mean, that's really great. It, it's funny. The, what the amount of podcasts I've done and people have had a moment of clarity. When I had Chris Conley on, there was a time of like this moment of clarity and it's the same thing for you. And I, maybe it's just growing up and I'm, we're all figuring it out. And this podcast will be different in our forties than our thirties. But now I think it should be. Yeah, and it's great to to hear that that you came out of that and and it's like you were doing it for you, you were doing it because it loved and you kind of instead of what someone going to think, it's like, well, this is in my heart, so here it is. Well, I think that at that age and with all those things we're talking about, you don't I didn't know what was I knew. And also, you know, I I, I, I unfortunately like I also my there was a lot of like extemporary, uh, extemporaneous circumstances. My, you know, I was, I was drinking and doing a lot of drugs. I was also like dealing with some trauma. My brother, the, the guy who I wrote that song for that seven inch about that freedom reviewed, he died when I was 18. And then my dad died suddenly when I was on tour in Europe with miracle. And I was 23. That stuff was like very jarring. And my reaction to it was to pour more drugs and alcohol on it and start to impact my relationships and impact my, I was like getting fired from jobs. And I was like, you know, ruining friendships. And it just still started to seem like a lot of, um, there was, you know, I was just kind of like giving over a lot of, um, I was given a lot of power to these very destructive elements in my life and wasn't really. And at a certain point that just stopped feeling as attractive. It kept, being attractive intermittently and I kept like I wrestled with that on and off for years before it like got to a place where it felt a bit more um peaceful and and like consistent but um you know I don't think I knew what was a perfect thing to say for the 
washed up emo podcast. I don't think at that age, given the circumstances I was experiencing, I really even knew what was in my heart. You know, it was so clouded and so, and I was so defensive. And so I just didn't want to get associated with things that I was afraid people were going to think were like lame or, uh, that I, you know, I also, when you're a kid, much less esoteric and philosophical and all that, when you're a kid, I didn't understand why certain people liked our band when I didn't like any of the other bands they listened to. And I didn't think that the music we were writing sounded like those bands. And that was like something that happened much later, honestly. Like it was like, I kind of realized like you are an asshole. If you think you are going to like dictate to these people, there's a lot of music out there. And if someone wants to spend any time at all with yours, you should just be grateful and you should just be like, that's it. You should just be stoked that anyone cares. Who cares if the rest of their record collection is stuff that you don't personally like, who gives a shit? That doesn't matter at all. It's, it's irrelevant, but all of the beautiful things we talked about earlier about the legacy of, indie rock and nirvana and punk rock that is some of the ugly stuff that lives in those scenes too and i took some of that with me for sure that fear of like you know it's like kurt cobain didn't want people who liked pearl jam to like his band for a while because he did well and at a certain point like you realize like i don't give a shit if someone who likes you know whatever at this point i can't even think of what a distasteful answer would be because i don't feel that strongly or violently about and very little there's so much music that i'm like if i don't like it it's just like oh i don't like it i don't need to attach my entire life meaning to that um which is maybe something that you feel differently about in your 30s and in your 20s but now i just feel like i really genuinely feel super lucky and that probably is part and parcel with like being sober and also like having tried to make a record for a major label and having that whole experience and then like building this whole other weird career since then that's been like very singular and really been on the backs of like the good graces of people being interested and willing to come to your music like sometimes one or two at a time and to me I just feel now like incredibly lucky that it's something I'm still able to do and that it continues to be something that grows every year, which is not the traditional experience for people at this point in their career in our world. So none of that stuff. I mean, that stuff just, I'm I'm not dogging that kid because that kid was, I couldn't have been any different at that point. That's where I was, but I, I am glad I'm not there now. What that, I love that sort of, I mean, it really shows you came out and then everyone that is in your life you know loves you and is supporting and it's sort of it's coming out as this thing I mean you're a professional musician you know this is what you're doing and you're still doing it and it's it's you're building on you know those moments from that you know from Capitol Records you know bullshit to being able to do stuff on your own and the Kickstarter and just it's I think that's such a great sort of rebirth. Well, it's it's certainly proven to me that you never, ever know anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
you know, the word of 2014, 2013, um, you have a lot of relationships with a lot of those newer bands. Um, what is it like being older and sort of talking to them um, and being sort of, you know, either they listen to you or they didn't, or you're sort of in their, in their circles. What, what's it sort of like? I think it's interesting to me because like, it's something I've read more about than actually like have interacted with musically a whole lot. Like uh, I've heard it's a thing and I, and I'm, I'm, and I also have heard like, I felt old because I read it and, I, and then I like read some articles and then I read a bunch of people like freaking out about there even being this phrase and I was like, wow, people need to calm down. But, um, what, what I, what I think about it is, um, you know, there's this, there's this one idea that's like, oh, now it's all of a sudden cool to like emo and, and then this other idea that's like, oh, where did it even go? It didn't go anywhere. You know, I was here the whole time and blah, 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 blah. To me, it's like, what that ultimately means to me is like, okay, so now Pitchfork and Brooklyn Vegan write about some of these bands, which they didn't for a long time. And they write favorably about some of these bands, which they didn't for a long time. I don't think that's weird or mysterious. I think that these institutions that we tend to think of as, as these like amorphous, uh, faceless things are comprised of people. And in an effort to stay in touch with current trends and uh, keep traffic coming to their websites and hold their pole position as tastemakers, they bring in new people. And as a result, sometimes the tastes move. And some of the new people that are writing for these places in the last few years are people who grew up not thinking it was super lame to like Brand New or Taking Back Sunday or the Get Up Kids. And they're people who's they're, they're knowledgeable people who have a broad taste in music, but whose tastes are informed just as much by that stuff as it was by like Radiohead or, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, Tricky or some like, you know, uh, or DJ Shadow or whatever, you know, like cooler thing that was more like genre expansive. So, I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's, not super weird to me that like the gatekeepers sometimes the gatekeepers change like the actual there's like a shift change and it actually rotates out new people come in um i think it's cool for all those bands i think it's an interest from my personal perspective it's interesting because it's like there was a long time where i was like too emo for some of the hipper publications and now i'm like not emo enough for some of those same publications so i i just think it's to me it's something i just i'm best suited like not thinking about it all that hard and just doing my work you know but uh like i but but uh you know i think it's it's nice honestly to meet bands that like you know i've played shows with like the you blew it guys and i've obviously i know evan and into it over it and um you know, I, uh, to me, like, so-so glows, which is a little bit outside that, but kind of, like, rubs elbows with it. And there's, to me, it's, like, it's never a bad thing, or it certainly feels nice when you hear that, like, people who um, are playing this in this movement that are, is getting paid a lot of attention to, like, grew up thinking you were not only good, but doing things in a way that, like, they noticed the way that you conducted yourself. And that's great. I feel very happy with that. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's interesting because even like our, my most like loud, abrasive rock side, like a record like Bubblegum, it's not really what those bands are playing. 
and like I think it's that's part of why like I get plenty of fine press every time we put a record out and I'm not in the position to complain about that but I don't really feel like my name gets attached very often to that emo revival thing because I don't really know that I'm like obviously in its DNA but I think that in talking to some of its most visible proponents uh, they seem to feel like I was I, I, you know, they, I was someone who registered to them and I, I, that's, you know, who, who doesn't think that's cool. I think that's great. You know, I don't really, beyond that, I don't, to be honest, I don't think about any of that stuff too deeply because it doesn't really have anything to do with me or anything that I think is even like real life <laughs> at all. It's just something for people to talk about, to pass the time online. And I get that. We all have to do that. I do that about other things. And that's something that I just don't really, but I, I, I think, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I, it's, it's, it's a moment and who knows how long it lasts moments cycle through and they cycle through even quicker now. But, um, you know, I think there's some really good bands in there. I saw that this world, the world is a beautiful place. And I'm not afraid to die. And to me, like I watch a band like that and I think of, I guess it's emo, but it also reminded me more of like Mogwai in places or like pieces of, explosions in the sky or something and i'm like well is that emo i i, I don't what's i don't funny, know what's funny about it is that all those bands have different influences and you can hear them like i talked to one band and they're like the only bands we can agree on in the car are um radiohead and deftones but they sound like band xyz and it's just i love it because it's coming from like a, a diy space and sure. they're they're doing and that's what's that's what I love about it. So I think it's that's how I think a lot of these bands are connecting with them is because they're coming from this like organic place. They're not just. And that is a good point, a valid point, and that is the coolest to me. What I do see as being like it's obvious that these bands that we just talked about don't sound like that last movement of emo music. They sound in a lot of different directions, but they're not really bands that sound like um, pop punk bands or whatever. And I think that um, I think that it is coming from a more credible kind of basement shows, VFW halls kind of place. And and I think that is also why when I do connect with these people and meet them and we talk, it's that's where we connect. That's where we connect. They see that even if I was playing, you know, whatever the hell I play, some hybrid of rock, pop, folk, indie rock, emo music. They knew that that's the way how I, my friend, this girl, Jamie songwriter from New York, Jamie Searman, I was talking about Bazan being like this punk rock songwriter. And she was like, you're that, that's what you are. You're not punk rock, but you're punk rock. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm too in it to know what that, you know, I don't think of my, who thinks of themselves in those terms, but she was real. She can be real declarative, and she was real declarative about that. So I think that's what they see. Even if I get up and play like something that sounds like a country song, if it's the way you conduct yourself, and where you are playing it, and how you interact with people. So that's what I think about that. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was my pleasure, dude. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So keep in touch. It was good to talk to you.
so drunk and anxious as 